Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Look Into It. Today is a very, very, very special episode. Uh, please let me introduce my master, the one, the only, the legend, Jean-Jacques Machado. Jean-Jacques, how you doing? Man, I'm doing fantastic. And from the other side, I see another legend. How about that? <laughs> Enough about me. <laughs> hey, let's... <laughs> Just to get my audience caught up onto what you're all about, Hibbler, play that, uh, play that highlight reel from Abu Dhabi. Here we go. After the Gracie family made their name, their cousins, the Machado brothers, also followed suit by coming to the United States. To showcase their family's style of the art, the brothers sought out grappling competitions rather than fighting. In a family of high-level black belts, it was tough to stand out as the most technical, but Jean-Jacques Machado did just that. His game was simple, attack, attack, and attack. Most of the time, it started with a guard pull, but from then on, it would be an onslaught of attacks. He chained together sweeps and submissions in a style that jiu-jitsu had not seen before. The winner of countless competitions in Brazil, what most grapplers remember Jean-Jacques for, would definitely be his performances at the early ADCC World Championships. In 1999, he won the gold medal and was a two-time silver medalist in 2000 and 2001, only losing by the slightest of margins and never getting submitted. His performances at the ADCC would see him utilize the first half of the match with no points to continually hunt for submission. His hooking and overhooking arms to attack while on the bottom came from his amniotic band syndrome, which left him without fingers on his left hand. Instead of relying on collar or sleeve grips, he used his arms to hug and control. The years of playing these grips in the gi gave him a distinct advantage over most competitors who needed to adjust their games for the lack of control no gi offered. Jean-Jacques' signature submissions were the triangle choke and arm lock, which he would either set up from butterfly guard or even from mount. Most of his combinations came from a side-to-side sweep-to-submission attack. Sweep to the left, if they defend, attack the right. This proved very effective even at the highest levels and against the elite of ADCC. Machado would go on to train another ADCC standout in Eddie Bravo, contributing to a revolution in the sport of no-gi grappling. Now a coral belt, this great technician teaches in Los Angeles where he still works to develop jiu-jitsu today. Jean-Jacques Machado, the legend. Hey, take take my audience through um, your relationship with the Gracie family in Brazil and how you and your four brothers got involved with jiu-jitsu. When Carlos Gracie learned his jiu-jitsu, he had a mind to create a family of warriors. And his mind was always to have lots of kids. And because of that, he had four wives, and I'm guessing between three other women, then he did not end up getting married, but he had kids with. His last marriage, he married my mother's older sister. Then that was our connection with the family. We grew up with our cousins. The last wife of Carlos Gracie had six kids, and we grew up together. Even though we don't carry the last name, 
the grace in him is in our soul. That's for sure. Do you remember the early days of jiu-jitsu? I mean, you must have been, what, five years old? Man, I remember uh, being in the back seat of my, my cousin and my trainer, my instructor, Carlos Gracie Jr., just going to the school, not knowing what I'm going to do. And here we are. I start training jiu-jitsu, kids' class, and because I was getting a ride from him, I had to stay there for the whole afternoon and watch all the classes. And even though I was very young, I was missing somebody to do drills with. And I remember that most of the days is like four or five hours inside of a jiu-jitsu school, which I guess we must like to be there all this time and pay attention into. And it was something so natural for all the kids in the family. It was like fun. And I always tell my guys, it's, as a kid, was a way of having fun. And when you grow up, it becomes a way of life. Now, now, you were born with um, a, a deformation of your left hand where you don't really have any fingers. Um, when, you were, when you first started jiu-jitsu, what problems did that present? I remember you saying that you were super defensive because you, you really couldn't grab the gi like the other guys could. So your defense became impeccable because of that, right? I think naturally, as a beginner, our tendency is to survive. That's natural. But to me, it was a matter of trying to understand how can I use their art to benefit me. And it took me some time to figure that out. A lot of trainings, a lot of uh, not so happy trainings because like, man, I can't hold the gear the way everybody holds. They grab a hold of the gear and they can't let it go. And I can barely hold the gear. Took me a while, but I think uh, overall it was a huge advantage because I became a very good in my defense. Because that was all I could see it. And I think because of that is the more you learn how to defend yourself, the more you understand how to attack. Yeah, yeah. man. What do you remember the, the first, your first go-tos? Like what were you, when you started getting good, what were your go-tos? Man, I used to do arm bar from the guard. That was my go-to. Because I was a skinny guy. Everybody put me on my back and I was just arm bar from everywhere. That was my go-to. Yeah, yeah. You're, I, couldn't, you're, I couldn't get on top of anybody. I was the skinniest guy in my class, and I was everybody in the class was bigger than me because I was a kid training that adult class. And the only thing I could do is be on my back, and you start seeing the arms everywhere. How old were you when you started getting, like, some legit respect from adults? Like, were you, like, uh, 14, 15 and started tapping out adults? Do you remember those days? Yeah, 15. I think it's 15. When you, when you get into that age that you become um, more mature, I think in a way of, uh, I guess, a little bit of your ego. You don't want to be going to the mat and get smashed by everybody. You kind of start kind of being noticed on the mat. And uh, because I had a good defense for so many years defending, I just want to go and get the finish. And every train I had, if anybody, higher belts, whatever, they could get me, but at least I get them once. That's was for sure. Oh, they got me twice, but I get them once. Then slowly, I was getting, let's say, growing up a little bit and be able to handle those big guys. They could not get me, and I always get them. Who were your first instructors? I know you said Carlos Gracie Jr. Was, um, I remember, 
I remember as a kid in Brazil, the end of the year school is in December. Then you have December, January, February, then you go back to school in March. Middle of the year is July, is just one month. And I remember going to my aunt's house, the last wife of Carlos Gracie, to stay for three months. And when we go there, my cousins, they go to teach. And we go with them. I remember as a kid watching uh, my cousin Carlinhos, Carlos Gracie Jr., he was the instructor for the kids. And after his class was Hollis Gracie teaching the adult class. And Carlos Gracie Jr. was the one that uh, brought us in and introduced us. Later on in life, I remember talking to my mom. I had private classes as a kid with Horion Gracie. Um, but I think it was Carlos Gracie Jr. was the one that take him to his car, go to the school, teach his class, train his class. And, um, and man, we like it. It was so much fun. So There's- much fun. There's so many legendary Gracies. I mean, it goes back, you know, to Helio and Carlos Sr. back like when 1920s or whatever. There's so many. Uh, one, and, there's, and they all made their mark, uh, Carlson Gracie, Hicks and Gracie. But Holes Gracie, R-O-L-L-E-S, Holes, uh, the R's are pronounced H's in, in uh, Portuguese, for those of you that are uh, confused. Holes Gracie, he he had his own little legend going on, like where he traveled all over the world and, and took grappling techniques from all, like from Sambo and wrestling and, and, and brought them back in like the Americana, the key lock, the, like the chicken wing key lock that is done in wrestling and catch wrestling. He brought that back and called it the Americana because he learned it from an American is... is Tell, tell, us, tell us a little bit about Holes, and he had a tragic death. Um, and t- t- tell me how, like, what do you remember about Holes, and how old were you when he passed? Um, I remember is today looking back. Holes was the guy that everybody in the family loved. He was a natural leader. Everybody wants to follow follow his guidance. He was a guy that was able to keep together. Everybody get along so well. Carson and the Hilo Gracie's kids, Carlos Gracie's kids, everybody got along so well. Carlos is basically the pillar in the whole family in terms of everybody get along. Because man, it's hard to do. Imagine you have everybody in the family as a samurai and everybody, not that everyone wants to prove, but it's very hard to control a lot of warriors. Who's the best? This guy or that guy, heavyweight, lightweight. It was very challenging. And he was the guy who was able to keep everybody peacefully together. There was no war. Because he was son of Carlos Gracie, but he was raised by Hilo Gracie. It's like he has two fathers. So explain that real quick. So the begin the origins of, of Brazilian jiu-jitsu come from Carlos Gracie Sr. and his yeah. younger brother Helio. So it was re- it, there was other Gracies too. There was like George Gracie and all that. But the the, the mainstream narrative is Carlos Gracie uh, uh, Sr. learned jiu-jitsu from Maeda, a Japanese. Imagine this. I, I, I end up finding out late in life, and that's funny. When I saw that, I called my mother, and I asked my mom. I said, Mom, I read some of the things that the jiu-jitsu come from Belém do Pará. It's Manaus. It's near that. It's in Amazon, that side, which has 
a huge Japanese community. And I did not know that Carlos Grace's father, I think his name was Gaston, if I'm not wrong, he used to own a circus, a circus. Back in those days, people wants attraction, and he has a circus with animals and everything. I'm not sure where he get that idea. He put a boxing ring and start doing fights as an attraction of his circus and became very successful. And one of the fighters was the Japanese Konji Maeda. And Konji Maeda was the one that wins all his fights. And Gaston asked him, man, can you teach my kid some jiu-jitsu? And that's how jiu-jitsu started. Man, the, main, the mainstream narrative was the mainstream, like the, the, the basic story that we got, Carlos Gracie, we, we, we knew about Gastel, Gastel Gracie, the, my story that what I heard was Gastel Gracie, the father of uh, Carlos, Carlos Gracie Sr., he, uh -huh. he somehow was a diplomat or something, and he, he, he got private lessons for his son from uh, Maeda. That, like, like in my head, it was like, oh, that was a private lesson, and Maeda, this Japanese jiu-jitsu master, is teaching uh, Carlos Gracie Sr., and then he taught his younger brother, Helio, and they went off and, 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 uh, from there. But I did not know Gastel Gracie owned a circus. <laughs> and then he had fights. He had like, like Valet Tudo fights at the circus, right? And back I, then, Maeda, the Japanese guy, who's was been everyone's a, he was he was going all over the world, right? He was like traveling all over he, the world, like in the like 1910, 1920 or something like that, right? Man, after, after the world, Second World War, a lot of Japanese, they, they want to go to Brazil because it's a lot of land. And in that specific area, a lot of Japanese, and they have so much the land for them to, to do the crop and whatever they want. And the thing was, um, he landed in Brazil after he traveled around the world. Before he ended up in the circus there, he went around the world. He went, I would say what I read in Cuba, and he introduced judo to the Cubans. He went to France, Germany, all around the world. And that's a funny that's, story. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy because judo is known for, or I mean, sorry, Cuba is known for their judo. France is known for their judo, right? And it seems like, and then he was in Brazil and Brazil is known for jujitsu. Like, wait a minute. Did my, is Maeda like the, was he the, the king of all samurais or what? Man, he, he is... 1500 fights and oh he never lost how crazy that, is that? that that's you know that what's crazier than that is that a movie is coming out about that and you are the consultant correct yes we have a lot of a lot of the things that um i'm not able to speak now but i think people will be happily surprised is the move about hicks from grace's life in my head at the same time it's a very similar situations in their personal lives and evidently on the fights, even some fights were very similar, the situations that they both went through. But then this is the whole crazy thing. He went around the world traveling, doing fights, and he never lost. In circuses. And, and also, didn't he, didn't Maeda, didn't he, what, what, he was forbidden to fight 
in Mexico, so he wore a mask. Then this is the thing. He right? was prohibited. He was prohibited to fight another Japanese. Okay. He cannot face somebody from his own country. And he was in Mexico at that time. And they brought some Japanese there to fight. Then Maeda could not show his face because then he would never be able to go back to Japan. The emperor would never, um, would say, would say, allow something like that. Two yeah. guys fighting. And he had that idea. How can I hide myself from? He wear a mask. And he became the main attraction because he was wearing a mask. Then, if I'm not wrong, right after that, Lucha Libre just started from a yes. Japanese. So maybe oh. so he invented the mask that the Mexican wrestlers, the Lucha Libre guys wear? He was the yes. first one? Yes. How crazy, crazy is that? That's yeah, crazy. The, on the middle of the fight, he was telling the other guy that he knew from Japan, man, that's me, Maeda. And they go, what are you doing over here? Said, man, I'm fighting you. And they end up kind of uh, almost doing, playing around. Maeda always won that fight against that guy, but he had to hide himself to make sure nobody recognized him. And that became a trademark, which sometime later is the origin of Lucha Libre which is huge in Mexico, right? That's so crazy. Maeda, yeah. that guy was the man. Did he go to, is there any evidence that he was in Russia? Did he show them judo man, too? I, I would tell this, that if you know in Japan, I'm not sure which part of, in terms of time-wise, they don't want people to learn jiu-jitsu. And if you go to Japan, even today, in every little town has a center that they teach some kind of a martial arts, from sumo, from karate, judo. Sam Tripley and I are coming to your town. Catch us on the road doing tinfoil hat comedy. Follow me on Instagram at tinfoil hat comedy night. February 24th, we'll be in Spokane, Washington. February 25th will be at Tacoma, Washington. Go to samtriply.com for more information and to buy your tickets. See you on the road. In that particular case, his instructor, I think was Tanabe. He was the guy who had that grappling style in judo. And that was the place, and I forgot the name, it's something jitsu, they used to call. Now, now Tanabe, now, now when, we, when we backtrack with Maeda and his training, he came from the, 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 the judo grandmaster Kano, right? K-A-N-O? Yeah. He came, from, he, he came from his school. So Jigaro Kano, right? That's the, that, that's the number one judo guy. That's the, yep. the grandmaster. And exactly. his, his, his student was Tanabe, and then Tanabe taught Maeda, correct? Yeah, yes. That's how it went down? And so so talk, let's talk, what do you know about Maeda's training in Japan under Tanabe and Kano or Kano? I know, I know that is, um, that little town was known by the, the, the style of this judo, which was jiu-jitsu. They have a, something jiu-jitsu was known by ground techniques because Nuwaza, if you look at, is that is that where nuwaza came from because they're saying that nuwaza is the form sure. of judo that uh, i'm not sure but um i can tell you that that 
that little place was holding what jiu-jitsu is today. It's crazy, right? Because if you think about it, judo and jiu-jitsu are the same thing. The rules are making the emphasis of judo be more standing and people forget the ground. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu makes people more forgetting the standing and go to the ground. Because if you see both styles, what is the lack of the jiu-jitsu fighters? Stand up. Yeah. What is the lack in the judo fighters? The ground. Yes. Evidently today, the technology, we're more aware of it. More, a lot of judo guys now are very good in the ground. And a lot of jiu-jitsu guys are very good also standing. But I'll start back in the end that that's, that little town there that they came from was known by having the best ground techniques of all the other little towns. And that was amazing because from that little town went all around the world, that style, that we are so fortunate to be part of that in today's time. Yeah, so, so Maeda was in Japan. He learned from Tanabe, who learned from uh, Kano. So now, do you know, like, man, who even knew that you go around, there was fighters going around the world, like the UFC, but in circuses. Like, that's where you, you, you had yeah. MMA and Valley Tudo was in circuses. That's crazy. Think about the history of the world. You have the Coliseum. What happened in Coliseum? Always some fights. You go around the world, all those big uh, structures over there, the attractions with always some kind of fighting happening. And the amazing thing is, I see today, UFC is not, things, it's not something new. It's just the story being repeated in a different time in the world. And you look at the attraction back those days were the fight, which became huge in Brazil in the 40s and 50s. That was almost as big as a soccer. They have a fight, jiu-jitsu fight in the soccer stadium with over 100 thousand people watching a fight in a soccer stadium. It's something that unthinkable in today's time. Back those days, they set something up like that. Yeah, so, made, so, ahead, so Maeda fought in Carlos Gracie's dad's circus, Gasto yes. Gracie. Fought in a circus, Gasto goes, hey, Show my son some jujitsu. Teach my kids that. Yeah. So he he showed he showed Carlos was didn't Maeda actually have an academy? Didn't he end up living he, in Brazil too? He ended he up, ended up he ended up opening that little center for the kids. Carlos and Helio and George, the three brothers, they were some of the kids' students. They have many other people that learn jujitsu from Maeda in Brazil, but none of them were able to keep jiu-jitsu alive. And I think Carlos had a vision and he was a guy way ahead of his timing in terms of seeing things. And he structured his family into, I'm going to make my family a samurai family. And you look at all the Gracie members in the family, almost 100% are jiu-jitsu black belt. That is crazy. That's the most gangster family of all time. Right? Like there's yeah, so many yeah. killers. This, I mean, how many, how many Gracie black belts off the top of your head do you think there are? 200, 100, 150? More, more, more than 150 for sure. That's, for sure. That's fucking nuts. From man. the family. 
So the story goes, uh, Maeda had a school for kids, right? It was a, it was a kid's school? Yeah. It wasn't, he, for, it wasn't for adults? Look, it was, a, it was a, uh, for the kids to be out of the street. He had okay. a school right in the center. Like, if we go to Japan today, they had that. And so, two of the student, three of the students were the Gracie brothers. And so, so, so at first, though, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Carlos, Carlos was older than Helio, correct? Yeah. So he, he, ended up, he ended up, so Carlos ended up um, uh, uh, teaching he, Helio. He taught Helio? Here's the amazing thing. Carlos had, I'm not sure how many years we're talking about, maybe three years, four years of jiu-jitsu with Maeda. Helio Gracie training only two years with Maeda. Two years. And I got to understand, back those days, were no black belts. Back those days, was a light blue belt or a darker blue belt. There was no black belt. Hmm. They used to wear blue belt. Now, now um, what year was this? Was this like 1920, 1930, 1925? Something like that. Something like that. Early 1900s. Yeah, that, that's crazy. So then then now most people in the jiu-jitsu community, they really don't know about that third brother, George Gracie, right? They don't know yeah, about I, that one. Even myself, I don't know him. I heard that he had a red hair. He was one of the toughest one, but I think he chose to do different things because uh, I think in our life is really important, especially in martial arts, to have like a, a mentor, somebody that can, can guide you for your own development because if we think we know everything, then shows that that's when we're lost. We're constantly learning. And since Carlos was the oldest brother, he had that idea. And I think he proved right because him and Hilo became, and everybody under their lineage became well-known with Jiu-Jitsu around the world today. So That's why not many people know about George, but everybody knows about Carlos and Hilo. Yeah, so um, I read this in Robert Drysdale's book where, um, and I didn't read the whole book. I just read like little pieces of it. And it's a, that's what's great about his book is you could just open it. It's like the, like the yeah. untold history of the great, you just open it and you just read anywhere. And it's like fascinating, right? It's fascinating. Um, it was a nice research he did, man. Very nice. He's talking about um, like George Gracie. He kind of started, um, he was fighting, he got in the circuit, uh, the circus circuit. Like he started fighting in circus. And uh, he would, uh, uh, what, what uh, Carlos didn't like, uh, where they had headbutted, one of the reasons was he would do some fixed fights, right? Man, I, I don't know much, but I'm guessing that's on the book. It was a nice research. And I know that um, in our family, that's something that would never be accept, acceptable at all. And probably, yes, that's, he wants to do on his own. He doesn't want to follow his older brother guidance. Then he, I heard he had a, a place in Sao Paulo, which he, he made also a lot of great students. But I don't think he got as big as his brothers did. Yeah, like most people don't, didn't even hear about George Gracie. Uh, now, now, Helio Gracie uh, was the younger brother of Carlos, like I mentioned before. Now, uh, Carlos ended up... 
like managing Helio and like Helio ended up becoming like the beast of the family and and the the first uh, uh, or um, the most legit Valetudo fighter, right? Helio and and Carlos became his like manager. Kind Carlos of? Carlos was like his father, like father and son. I'm not sure how how much was the year the difference, but yeah. he is the amazing part. I don't know if a lot of people realize that. Helio Gracie had only two years of jiu-jitsu class. He developed his own style of jiu-jitsu, which is the one we practice today. Because of his physical disadvantage with everybody, he has no strength. He has to have the techniques, the leverage. And in two years of training, he understood that. And he actually developed jiu-jitsu two years imagine two years of training suddenly you start developing your own style a way that allows you to have a confrontation with somebody twice your size and be able to succeed with two years of jiu-jitsu and how did um like at when they when helio started he started taking challenge matches and he would start challenging people, right? And 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 uh, um, how did that work out? In the beginning, uh, this is like in the, in the very beginning, 1920s, 1930s, he started doing Valley Tudo, Tudo back then. And what happened is, I think they, they were in Belém do Pará and I'm not sure what was the agreement they had with Maeda that uh, Maeda would teach Jiu-Jitsu, but nobody that learned Jiu-Jitsu from him will be allowed to open a school. Hmm. And I'm not sure what will happen on the circumstance of life. The Gracie brothers move to Rio. And they did not have much money to open a school. And what they end up doing is they end up going to, how they call the piers where there's big ships coming in, those strong guys carrying boxes and all of this. Yeah. And literally, they start challenging those guys. Hey, wanna, I bet this little kid can kick your butt and they make bets. And they ended up being, beating up a lot of those guys. Well, on the docks. Them. He ended up fighting yeah, on the docks. docks. Yeah, yeah. On, on the, the shipping docks. docks, that's crazy. Those, shipping those docks. Those are the first fights. That's the real yeah. crazy in action right there, right? Yeah, <laughs> there you go, man. I wish yeah. they had cameras to film those things because they have so many stories that things that happened there. And uh, that's and funny. Slowly, it slowly it turned into like official fights in rings, right? And then after that, yeah, and they become very popular. Um, they end up um, open their school. And I don't, I don't recall how many TV stations we had in the past, but I think I grew up, I'm not that old, but I grew up, I think I have five TV stations. That's all we could see, five. Today you have Thousands. We have only five channels. And all channels used to show um, Friday night fights, something like that. And they became, they were on TV fighting and winning. And they made a show. And every member, every kid in the family, they started fighting too. And they made their reputation by doing the fights and winning the fights. And with no weight class or nothing, just make match up, big guy, small guy. And they, and they, and they had it on TV, right? They had it on TV. Then they explode. 
I remember um, reading uh, um, Robert Dreisel's book. I remember something in there that said that <clears throat> they were having fights on the regular before World War II, and then when World War II hit in full swing, they kind of they kind of like just the fights stopped for about ten years, and then in the fifties. In the 50s, they brought it back, and then they started fighting again after the dust settled from World War II. Is that correct? And, yeah, and man, it's, it's crazy because the jiu-jitsu end up staying alive all these years because of the Gracie family, because they were the ones accepting the challenge, improving how effect jiu-jitsu is and was and is and will be forever. And imagine this. If uh, first UFC, Jose Grace will not win. We will not be here talking today. Yeah, it would be different. You understand? Yeah. Imagine <clears throat> if the street fight in Brazil that we, a lot of people became famous on the beach, Hickson did not win. We're not going to be here talking today. That's, true. That's why every single fight that happened inside the ring and outside the ring had the purpose on that particular time that was needed to keep jiu-jitsu alive. Was was something that we never actually looking for a fight. There was something that people put a doubt how effective jiu-jitsu was and said, no, we're going to prove you that jiu-jitsu is effective, better than whatever you do. And that's why all those fights happening. It's not that some people want to go in the street and fight everybody. But when people had any doubt how good their style is, they were ready to prove. That's why every single fight on the streets that we have, if it was a loss, we're not going to be here talking today. It's crazy, right? But think about it. Those are the things that needs to be happened in history of martial arts for us to be here. Tell me which is the style in the world that had such a fast growth than jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Oh, no. The UFC, Crazy. The UFC, um, the UFC was created by Horion Gracie, who was Helio Gracie's son. Yes. His, his, story, his, his story is pretty fascinating, too, because um, nobody knew anything about these Valley Tudo fights going on in Brazil. Yep. All we knew was Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, you know, uh, um, boxing. Yeah, just boxing. That's all we knew. That's what we thought fighting was. We thought fighting was boxing. I wrestled in high school, and I never considered that a martial art. Like I, I would wrestle when I got into fights because I just because I was a pussy, and I thought, you know what? If someone got in my face, I'll just double leg them and take them <laughs> to the crowd and just hold them. I was just I, to me that was fighting like a pussy. <laughs> but I didn't know you could like fight on the ground in the movies. They didn't fight on the ground. I mean, like Bruce Lee had like two scenes, I think, on the ground. But um, it, it's it's kind of uh, we understood that we, when we got to America was a learning process for people, and I think uh, people took a little bit wrong because jiu-jitsu brought reality into martial arts. Yeah, yeah. That, so was, that was the biggest thing that happened to people. This is real, doesn't look good, but it's real. This is not real, but looks good in the movie. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, now, the UFC, that's what really uh, exposed jiu-jitsu to the world. 
And that was, that was, um, that's an interesting story because Horion Gracie, again, he's the son, one of the many sons of Helio. There was a Helio side and the Carlos Gracie side. And yes. we're talking about how they're brothers and they, you know, they, they, they learned jujitsu together. But as the decades passed, they kind of, there was, they, it formed like two sides of the Gracie family. There was a, the Helio side and all his sons. And then there was the Carlos Gracie side and all of his sons. And there were everyone still together and they would still fight and represent Gracie. But there was kind of like two different sides, correct? And can you explain uh, the yeah, difference between both sides? You know, it, it's basically on, on our family is not everybody love everybody. But if everybody's in trouble, we are all together with that person. Where everybody put their difference aside, you know. It's very difficult. It's like in every family. It's yeah. always you have disagreements. Not always someone is right or not always someone wants to listen to the other person. I think in a way it's a mutual respect for sure. Um, you can see that uh, in both sides of the family, everybody's into jujitsu. Some people putting themselves more in teaching. The other side put themselves more in competing in jiu-jitsu. Um, the funny part is this, and the learning process I had and I experienced myself, most of our classes we learned to how to teach better, not how to fight better. How can I teach better? Consequently, that made us good to fight. Was I was like, imagine this person doesn't speak, doesn't know anything. How can you make this person learn jiu-jitsu? Yeah, yeah. That was our, our thought was not, oh, I'm going to go in a fight. I'm going to do this. No, how can I make my students understand jiu-jitsu? has no skills. And I think that personal challenge was very helpful on your fighting side. I want that upper body clench. That's what I'm, I'm going after. With the underhook. Looking for double underhooks. Fucking, that's a juicy ass clinch. Perfect double underhooks. You're on your side, boom. That's all perfect. That's huge. In my game, for me, I'm like, I've got this motherfucker. First fight in Abu Dhabi 2003 against Gustavo Dantas. I got right in and got double, perfect double underhooks. I'm like, oh my God, I had him in a lockdown, perfect double under, really quick. He just gave it to me. I'm like, and I was just sitting there going, oh my God, he just gave it to me. That was just off a of front headlock. 100%. Push into him. You want to smash him and then jump on that leg. You want to rush him so they don't have a, so they're off balance. You jump on that leg, try to, you hook that leg, you're going to take their back or put them in the truck. Either one. Does that make sense? The Valley Tudo fights you, you were talking about in Brazil that were going on in the 50s and 60s, like on Friday nights. Everybody was fighting like Car Carlson. That's another warrior. Carlson had his family. That was that, that was another side. That was a that was a Carlo. That was a Carlos Gracie Senior side. That was a Helio side. And then the Carlson Gracie side. Carlson. That was a little different too because he um, he fought in a lot of those Valetudo fights. Um, probably he probably fought more than than anybody. Correct? Like did Carlson Gracie fight more yeah. than any? I think is this is um, it's hard sometimes you through generations because they're different generations. Yeah, it's very hard to tell. Oh, he's better than the prior generation. But if no, it wasn't I didn't mean better. I meant, I meant, I meant who, he fought so, a lot. 
and I think is on the early days, I remember every school in Rio de Janeiro used to call Gracie School. Every school. Oh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Every school. Then you come with the neighborhood to make sure it's different. Then you have Gracie Barra, Gracie Maita, Gracie Panema, Gracie Leblon, Gracie Recreio. Every neighborhood, but all the schools used to be Gracie. Then little by little, students from the Gracie School end up opening their own school, and they put a different name. But we have a time in Brazil that all these schools are just Gracie School. And evidently, I think uh, everyone I, I always wants to prove I think uh, each member of the family had their contribution to keep Jiu-Jitsu alive today. Carlos did his share. Helio Gracie did his share. Carson Gracie did his share. And so on, so on, so on. And I think is Carson had a lot of fights and he fought a lot of tough opponents. He did extremely well. Who's, who was his instructor? Helio Gracie. You know what I mean? Oh, was Hel- Helio was Carlson Gracie's instructor? Yes. Oh, Every one of the family learned jiu-jitsu from Helio Gracie. Oh, okay. So so Carlos Gracie Sr., he didn't, after a while, he wasn't inv- too involved in the teaching yeah. aspect? He gets his kids and said, Helio, raise my kid. <laughs> he did that to Holes, right? He did that to everyone. Yeah. Because he had that- kids older than Holes. All his kids were... Uh, raised by Helio Gracie. And for a while there, in, in, in that 1960s, 1970s generation, Holes Gracie, the, the guy we were talking about before, no. who was, who was Carl's, Carlos Gracie's son, but Helio raised him, he was known as, probably for a while there, as the... the he was the best guy in the family. He was the best guy, for sure. And he, the- and, and he, went, he traveled all over the world, right? He, he was a very open-minded guy, very smart, I would say, very ahead of his time. There was a guy that has no fear of anything. That was him. He wasn't like a big guy. I think he was maybe 160 pounds, the most. Yeah. Skinny, I was in shape. But I always had that attraction for danger because he doesn't see any danger in anything. But somebody that is like very few people in the planet are well liked by everyone. Yeah, he, you, like you said earlier, he, he, he was the one who brought everyone together. And, and um, he was, for you to see, he was um, also with Helio Gracie, Hickson Gracie instructor, was Horace Gracie. And he now, was kind of raising Hickson to be the next guy after him to take over. And yeah. then, and then, like now, now Hickson is is the top of the family. I mean, you know, for uh, many years, for many yeah. years, man, he's yeah, so he's the guy that um, also had his input into the jujitsu style. Yeah. Now, now, um, Holes, how old are you when Holes died uh, in a hang gliding accident? Man, um, I'm not sure. You? I'm not sure how old I was, like maybe 12, 13, something like that. I remember my my aunt, she came into the room. I was there with myself, my brother Higgin, and my cousin Helion. And my aunt said, oh, uh, Hollis had a little accident, but 
he's okay, he's in the hospital, blah, blah, blah. But we felt something was wrong, something was wrong. And a few hours after that, they were telling everyone in the family what happened, and that was, it was a shock. I think everybody was lost, everyone. Nobody knew what to do. Wow. It's something unthinkable because we always thought him as a, not human, as a superhero. Superhero never dies. No. And that was something that brought everyone to the ground as a reality. Like, whoa, what's happening here? And and took a little while for people to to raise themselves. But I think back then, Hickson was even though very young, 19, maybe 20, he was ready to, to be in charge. And that's what he did. Hickson took over as the the number one Gracie fighter, yeah. and he he had some classic fights with the 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 probably the most classic is probably against Zulu. That uh, that was that was like uh, imagine imagine someone today goes on TV at primetime news and challenge the family some big guy. Anybody in this family, I'll challenge, I'll kick your butt. Hey, Hibbler, find Zulu versus Hickson. Zulu, man, Zulu. And it was a big difference in size, man. That Zulu is a big guy. He yeah, was a man. professional was, fight. I think it was Hickson's first fight. Oh, that was his first fight. Whoa. Yeah. First and then Hickson, Hickson became um, the champion of the family, the most feared, the most technical. He um, had that, uh, there's also a famous yeah. fight uh, with Hickson against, um, um, what was his name? The guy on the beach? The, oh, the Hugo Duarte? Oh yeah, Hugo Duarte on the beach versus Hickson. Okay, let's see. Uh, that Zulu one, that one on the top, right there. Click that. Let's... No point system. It's normally win or lose. This match, is scheduled for three rounds of 10 minutes each. The man with the glasses and the white shirt is Grandmaster Elio Grayson. The jumping around you see is in hopes to disguise his approach. Due to the big weight difference, it might be difficult to flip the opponent. One has to wait for the right moment. Being on the bottom does not necessarily mean that you're losing the fight, especially when you're fighting a heavier opponent. You may have to wait for a while for the right opportunity to turn things around. Jiu-Jitsu techniques will give you the elements to wait for that opportunity. It is smart to keep the opponent very close so he cannot develop the distance for a powerful hit.
strikes to the kidneys can be very effective on the long run. In one of my father's fights, his opponent took such a beating to the kidneys that after the fight, he was urinating fragments of the kidney. Remember that in reality, it is much more difficult than you realize to use fancy kicks and those supposedly deadly punches, especially when you're dealing with someone as strong as this man. There's a good chance they might not work. As you can see, in this kind of fight, they are not trying to make it look good for the camera or the audience. They're trying to survive. In their first fight, three years before, the brawler was sure of victory and fought much more aggressively. But that didn't work. He was defeated with a choke hold in 12 minutes. Now, in this rematch, Hickson's second professional fight, the brawler is a little more apprehensive. The difference between the Jiu-Jitsu taught at the Gracie Academy and all the other martial arts styles, including other styles of Jiu-Jitsu, is that the evolutionary process of our teaching methods is the result of extensive research by Grandmaster Elio Gracie. Not only did he have to adapt some of the traditional Japanese techniques to accommodate his lack of strength, but more important was his contribution as a teacher developing the teaching method so efficient that he could teach virtually anyone. The Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Torrance, California is the only organization that upholds those teaching standards and is endorsed by my father, Elio Gracie. The referee will stop the fight and drag both contenders to the middle of the mat. But notice that the brawler is going to sneak in a punch during the break. The referee will call his attention, but since this is not a point system fight, there's nothing he can do about it. He can't disqualify the brawler for that.
Everyone who looks at martial arts as a means of self-defense is really looking for the effectiveness that can be found at the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy. Brawler now is trying to apply the same choke as he did on the boxer in the previous fight. But the Gracie brother knows better and avoids that. Once again, the brawler goes for the choke hold. Once again, the Gracie brother prevents him from succeeding. Believe it or not, the safest thing to do when fighting somebody like this is to stay as close as possible so he doesn't have the distance to hit you with the effectiveness that he would like to. Knowing the proper techniques of Jiu-Jitsu gives you the confidence to launch in. Fast forward it to the end. Let's see how this one ends. I don't know how long it's going to go. Let's see. Second round. You got to finish this round. Then I have another round. Right at the beginning of the next second round. The brawler almost okay. accomplishes a crucial top position. But proper leg work prevents it. In a fight of this magnitude, there's much more happening than one realizes. Every little movement, no matter how insignificant it might seem, has a place in the overall result. Just like in a chess game, the way you move a little pawn when I take that, is really the result of the whole game. You can actually feel your opponent's thoughts. It is important that you don't think they're just holding on to each other. The Jiu-Jitsu man knows that his opponent is tired and is preparing to make his move. back of his opponent. And gradually climbs on his back. 
and just like those anacondas from the north of Brazil, by the delta of the Amazon, he'll wrap himself around his prey. The end is near. In his last attempt to escape, the desperate man rolls around. He even tries eye gouging, but with the squeeze on the neck, the wild man taps out, and the tradition of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy lives on. And I didn't know that they fought twice, man. Whoa. I was on that one. I was there. I was right ringside watching with my dad and uh, one of my brothers. The, the first fight was very wild. Zulu just came like crazy, swinging everywhere. And the first round was like he had the advantage. But he was exhausted for the second round. Then he got choked right away. Yeah. Then on this fight, he tried to play safe. But he want to grapple Hickson. I mean, you're going to get tired. So Hickson, Hickson, Hickson's brother, Horion, the guy you heard narrating, that's Horion. He's, uh-huh. the, one, he's the one who came to the United States. He was, uh, he was like, uh, he was acting when he could. Yeah. And then he'd yeah. be like cleaning offices. Like, uh, what would, explain, I spoke explain, to him, the, explain I, to my audience the, the story of how Horion Gracie moved to the United States in with the dream of uh, exposing Americans to jiu-jitsu. Man, I, I remember he was doing all kinds of work to survive in America. People did, I don't think people know that he was in Hawaii for one time sleeping on the bench in the park. Horrible. It was like almost like a, like a homeless in Hawaii. Wow, like how did that, how did he end up homeless? And just came here, not much English, and he was, then he got a job cleaning the house, washing dishes in a pizza place or something. But I think um, one of the houses he was cleaning, I think was a TV producer and the actress or something like that. And they look at him, he's like, hey man, you can be in the movies, you're a good looking guy or something. Then he started doing a lot of movies through this connection then he starts showing some jiu-jitsu for the movies too and people are like oh what is this then suddenly he starts teaching jiu-jitsu to the people in the kitchen that he used to work with with the people in the movie set then he start making his um his way into then we have Chuck Norris going to Brazil for a vacation in a scuba diving. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Then I'm not sure how the conversation ended up. Chuck Norris, I think, was the tour guide guy. I was, oh, I should learn jiu-jitsu, the Gracie, Gracie. Then Chuck Norris ended up going to the Helio Gracie Academy. For all your 10th Planet jiu-jitsu merchandise, please visit 10thplanetjj.com slash shop we also got a look into a t-shirt that just dropped thank you very much for your support then he had his experience there he had no idea what jiu-jitsu was he got choked out then he said my son is in the states 
Then he got in contact with Horan Gracie here, invited him for a seminar, his karate organization. And um, that's how everything started. Jeff Mars was one of the guys who made jiu-jitsu stay in America and giving jiu-jitsu the exposure before the UFC to the whole to the whole country. Wow, so Chuck Norris goes to Brazil on vacation, uh, meets some jiu-jitsu guys, trains at Helio Gracie School in Brazil, and then Helio says, my son Horion's in the States, Chuck Norris hooks up with Horion in the States, has him out for a seminar at his karate school, and then that that's, and then, then how did, uh, did Chuck Norris have anything to do with um, the UFC? Because then UFC one came soon after, correct? No, I, I think it's we. I remember in my generation, even before we can we got here in the ninety two. I got myself in ninety two, which was before the first UFC. Yeah, it was what 93. November ninety three. Then we already had the school with a lot of students, but. We end up going to visit a lot of schools in all different styles, and everybody turned us down. Like, I don't want to learn this. I don't want to learn this. Now, now let's, I, let's back up a little bit. How did you end up in the States? Can you take us through that? Like, what, what was the big move to the United States for you about? For Horion, like, Horion came out before you guys, right? Horion came here, man, in the early 80s. Or and, then, like and then and then explain the garage that's because that's super historic in the great story and and you know how how it is you don't have much resources to open a school then in california we learned that the garage is not made for cars it becomes like a storage room with such a great weather you don't need to park your car in the garage and and he had that idea to teach in his garage or or then he got the mats, he got students. Then it was very common in those in the late 80s in Brazil to do something called student exchange. Everyone reached at the point, it's like your parents want you to learn English and send you overseas in America for you to learn English. In that particular time, my brother Higgin came to the States because he wants to practice wrestling. Then Horian heard he was here, called him to teach jiu-jitsu at his garage. Back that time, Hoyce, Hoyce Grace was here too. There was Higgin and Hoyce and Horian teaching at one garage in Torrance. But it was growing so much. It was no group class. It was just privates all day long. Privates. And my brother Higgin said, man, I've been teaching so many jiu-jitsu, so much classes that I had time for me to train. Then he invited two of my brothers, Carlos and John. Then Carlos came in, started teaching part-time. He can train. The Sunday Dish School, the Gracie School, is, and the garage was growing. And he ended up opening his first school, I think it's in Carson. It was the first little school, the Gracie School, which my brothers were there teaching for Horem. It was the original one. And man, from that point on, UFC came in and... Things get out of, would say, explode. Then the Gracie School in Torrance became a huge place. My brothers end up having like a, a little follow fallout with Horion, and they end up moving out. They want to go back to Brazil, but the students they were teaching like them so much, and the students said, "Man, let's teach at your garage." 
Then the Machados end up having their own garage, teaching students that didn't want to stay in the Gracie School. They follow my brothers. And here we are today. And then you came out. Were you the last one to come then out? Then I came out. Yeah, I was the last one. I came in the 92. We're a close family. My brothers, I came here on a vacation in 1991. And I was missing them. 1992 in Brazil was a new president. Got there, made some horrible changes in the political world. And we just felt jiu-jitsu was in a, in a plateau. And I, for myself, I achieved everything possible in Brazil in terms of jiu-jitsu. I won everything there, but I wasn't happy because my brothers were here. Then I came in in 92, and Chuck Norris had a little, I'm not sure why, he stopped training harder. I tell that story so funny. He came to a house and knocked at the door with uh, another student there, and I remember opening the door like, man, this guy looks like Chuck Norris. <laughs> I, I had no English. I called my brother. My brother, that's Chuck Norris. He's like, holy cow. Then he became a great friend, a great guy to spread the jiu-jitsu. Every TV show, every movie he had, everything he could expose jiu-jitsu, he did. And he was training jiu-jitsu every day. Six he- months every day. Then he does a movie, takes a brother with him, trains in the hotel, yeah, guy was addicted to jiu-jitsu. And he put you guys in a few episodes of Walker, Texas oh, Ranger, right? He used to call us, and he wrote one that we play ourselves. That's awesome. He wrote, yeah, and then we go, and until today, he's a, he was someone that uh, has a lot to do with jiu-jitsu. He might not even get the credits for, but before the UFC and all this, he was the one telling everyone to train jiu-jitsu. Wow, most people don't know that. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is uh, at least partially responsible for the explosion of jiu-jitsu. He, he gave us a school. He opened a school in, in the Valley, and he put that on the late times, and suddenly we're not even ready to have so many people coming in. He was promoting, bringing people in, actors, and everybody came into training for us because of him. Yeah, that's... Uh... You know, when I, after I saw UFC 2, I was doing karate at the time. And, uh, man, I hated Hoist in the beginning of that UFC event. That was the first and only 16-man tournament that the UFC man. had. The first one was eight-man, and I think the third and... Can you imagine UFC like that today? Do you no, think anybody impossible. would go through? No, it's impossible now. A 16-man MMA tournament, that's brutal. That. No weight class. Yeah, you, yeah, you can't. You can't Can you imagine that, that today. Yeah. But you notice one thing: when in the Hickson fight was no mouthpiece, no gloves, open hands, which makes people think twice in strike, because you can break your hand, and it becomes a lot, would say, easier to apply chokehold, because the gloves and all the equipments are making a little more challenge for the grappler to succeed. Yes, that is true. That is true. Um, <clears throat> you, you can do 16-man combat jiu-jitsu tournaments, that's for sure. There we go. I, I know a guy who's doing a show like that, and it's turned <laughs> out to be fantastic. Yeah, I can yeah. introduce you to him. His name is Eddie Bravo. <laughs> did you see? Did, did you see the, the team duel? Man, that was, that, I saw that. Man, that was amazing, man. I saw you jumping around. That was Oh, man. Ben Eddie. 
with the with Man. the Hindu teeth. Bet you, you you know Ben Eddie, right? The crazy yeah, rubber guard yeah, guy. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. That guy is. It was uh, the last fight. <laughs> Did it? Oh man. Um, so now now you're in the in the states. You guys opened up a school. The UFC just blew jujitsu up big time through the stratosphere. Um, I ended up watching UFC two. By the end of it, I loved Hoist at the end of that. I'm like, oh, my God. I, I was doing karate at the time. I, I had, uh, no, actually, at the time, yeah, I was, I was doing karate. And then I just, you know, I saw my karate uh, guys get beat up in the UFC. So I jumped ship and I went looking for jujitsu. I remember seeing a jujitsu sign on, um, in front of a, a school on uh, Laurel our Canyon school, and Magnolia. It said, it's our a, school used to call Carlos Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Yes, that's, that's how I found you guys. That's how I found you guys because I went to this. I go, the okay, yellow page. Nobody knows what that is, right? The yellow yes, page. That's where I found it, the yellow pages. Because uh, um, I saw, once I knew that I needed to join Jiu Jitsu, I remember seeing a school that said Jiu Jitsu, but it actually said Jiu Jitsu. They spell it different, but I thought it was the same thing. I thought it was the same thing. It was right there on Laurel Canyon in Magnolia. I walk in, the guy said black geese. I'm like, mm, okay, these are black. I hoist had a white one, but I, I go, okay. It didn't really do that much groundwork and I'm sitting there watching it. And I asked the instructor, I'm like, how come you guys aren't on the ground? Like, uh, like hoist Gracie. And he goes, oh, you're talking about that, that Gracie jiu-jitsu. This is different. He goes, but, but their cousins are here in the valley. They're the Machados. And I remember thinking, oh, man. And he goes, you want their number? I'm like, no, no, no. I didn't want to offend him. I go, I like this. I like what you guys are doing. But in my head, I was like, Machado, Machado. And I couldn't find Machado, but I did find Carlos Gracie Jr., and I'm like, oh, Carlos Gracie Jr. Jiu-Jitsu. It was right there on, uh, it was on Ventura in Encino. And I went yep. in, I found it, and you guys had just moved out. You guys, I'm like, oh, I found it, but it's empty. I'm like, what's going on? And then you see the little sign. It gave a new address. And, I, you know, then I, I went in. And uh, um, I, I remember going in because I wrestled a couple years. And I remember thinking I was pretty much sold on Jiu-Jitsu based on UFC 2 and what Hoist did. I was pretty much sold on it, but that was a little bit inside of me that like, I'm like, he didn't really fight a wrestler. I go, maybe jujitsu is super advanced wrestling, or maybe it's prehistoric wrestling. Maybe, maybe they're not going to be able to do anything to me. And I went in on my first day and Dave Meyer, Dave Meyer, he was a purple belt. He choked me out 27 times or whatever. I don't know how many times it was like 27, 37. I don't even really know. It's just a million times really. And I was sold. I got. I thought. I thought. Okay. Uh, I thought. You know, with my wrestling, uh, maybe there'd be a chance that. And plus, he didn't look that that intimidating. David Meyer didn't really look like. Uh, um, he, he looks like a doctor. Yeah, he looks like a doctor totally. <laughs> and he just he just wiped the floor with me. And then I was convinced. But the problem was, the problem was it was too expensive. I couldn't afford it. I was working at the strip club, but I had day shifts. I wasn't really making that much money. I was making like 50, 60 bucks on tips a day. And uh, when I and and the karate school I was taking, it was like hey, 50 bucks a month. You want a Porsche or you want a VW, right? <laughs> That's what Johnny, your brother Johnny sat me down. I'm like, man, because it was like a, it was like a, like $120. It was like $120 for like, for like one day a week. And I'm like, what? And he goes, three days, three days. 
Yeah. He goes, well, you could pay for a Mercedes or you could pay for a, a VW. It's up to you. And I'm like, damn, I'm going to have to get that VW. <laughs> but then, you know what? And then I couldn't afford it for a little bit. I joined um, the Magna Institute, which, came, you know, Cass Magna was a, a disciple of Danny and Asano and that system. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, that was unlimited for 70 bucks. I'm like, okay, I'll just do that. And plus they were like, in the yellow pages, they had a big picture of Bruce Lee. I was always a Bruce Lee fan. So I'm like, okay, I can't afford jujitsu right now, but you know what? I love Bruce Lee. So let me do this Bruce Lee school. I show up and you know, they just use Bruce Lee to get people in there. The guy didn't even really like Bruce Lee that much. He, he barely did any Wing Chun or anything. So, um, but I ended up getting better shifts at the strip club. They ended, I ended up getting a couple of night shifts. And I'm like, dude. And then I went back. I didn't even, I, I made so much extra money that I got better shifts that I didn't quit the Magna Institute. I was doing both. I said, okay, I'm going to do jujitsu. I only could afford, I'll do jujitsu once a week. It was like either like 80, 90 bucks once a week. And then 120 for two days or three days, something like that. And then Tuesday and Thursday, I still went to the Cass Magna Institute, which is basically striking Indonesian style striking with sticks and Kali and all that shit. And then Friday, I would, that was my jujitsu class. And for two years, the first two years of jujitsu, I only could afford one day a week. And anytime I would drive to the Cass Magna Institute, I would look for, a re I would just make up reasons to turn around and go home. If I just coughed a little bit, I'm, like, I'm driving, I'm like, you know what? I'm sick. I should turn around and go fucking pass out on my couch. I was looking for a reason not to train striking because striking is, is not as fun as jujitsu because jujitsu, you could, you're going a hundred percent against each other and you're getting actual real kills and real taps. And in striking, you can't knock people out. You, you're like hitting bags, you're hitting focus mitts, light sparring, just like you're, you're not really getting any kills because you can't because you'd be brain dead in a week if you guys were knocking each other out, going full blast every day. So it wasn't fun. So, but Fridays, oh man, it, even if I partied and drank all night Thursday and had one hour of sleep, there was no way anybody was going to take away jujitsu from me. There was no way. I didn't need any sleep. I could be just, because those were my partying days. I was partying hard. There was I, no way. There was no way I was going to miss jujitsu on Friday. I, and, then I got, and then go ahead. I, I remember something that not many people might not know, but I remember you coming to the school and you had that long hair, your mask, you have all the preparation. <laughs> it's kind of how you go into to meditation. You put your gear on, then you go training for over an hour. Yeah. Not, not talking much, just go to the workout. Then the two days you're not training, two other guys, friends, Todd, and I think Frank, uh, Frank, Frank, Frank you guys do. Yeah, you guys Scott, just Scott Hedondo. Hey, Scott Hedondo's back. He's trains at my school now. He's back. I haven't seen him in forever. Oh, He's back. He's training. <laughs> Scott Hedondo. But I remember, back. basically, you start doing shushitsu five days a week. Tuesday and Thursday, just drills. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, forever. You show up and train for an hour and a half. No problem. You go. And if you get it, somebody great. If you don't get it, great. Uh, I remember you mentioned you show some of the techniques with your natural ability. And I remember one of my brothers saying, man, forget about this. You got to do this. But the way I see is this, man. It is very hard for you to understand or have the vision of an artist. When somebody's doing the paint, people are like, what is this? Then suddenly that paint worth millions. 
because the way each one of us see the art is different. And I remember when you're showing some of the movements, the rubber guard, the twist, all those movements, I had that same feeling. I said, this guy is an artist. Let's see how his paint is going to look like. And today, you're an artist, and your paints are worth millions and millions. Oh, not millions. Maybe, maybe like a couple thousand. But, but, but you understand the way and the things that you adjust to yourself, the mix that you did, the ideas that you have. You become a study, a fanatic in a good way with the art to find always the best way, the easiest way, the, the way that you use less effort to be able to do even more. And that was like, um, if I'm not wrong, the first no-gi school officially, at least I know in Los Angeles, was yours. And that was an incredible thing. And following you, you're the number one guy who put the no-gi in the map. And not only help with that, you start doing the events and start doing all those things because of uh, how creative you are. And a lot of people are going to understand that um, the no-gi world um, has, we'd say, a lot to give to you for the creation, that artistic way that you did to come up with, I would say, your own style inside a jiu-jitsu style. That's the beauty. You teach a class and on your students, and each one has your own way of understanding and applying the technique. And some of them even bring it deeper into. And you did that, like very few people that we know. What, what, thank, you very, very thank you very, very much for that. Very proud and see this development as like a little kid growing up and with the heart of jiu-jitsu, man. It's, uh, it's amazing. I couldn't have done it without you, John Jacques. And the, 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 the reason it really all happened is forget about self-defense, forget about staying in shape and all that. It, I, got, I was just so into the, the game, the virtual reality video game that jiu-jitsu is. Because like I said a little earlier, you go 100% at each other. There's no strikes, so you can go 100%. If there was strikes, you can't go 100%. But since jiu-jitsu is just a pure grappling art, you can go 100% and you can get a kill 100%. When a guy taps because they get put in a choke, that choke, that exact choke can save your life. It can save the lives of your family. Um, it, uh, it, it, it's it's so um, such a beautiful game and so addictive. I was I was addicted to the game. It got to the point where, like I said, for two years I was only training once a week jujitsu and Tuesday on Friday and Tuesday and Thursday I would train striking, and then after like a year and a half, close to two years, I got man it would it would it would bother me that someone. I'm like, I'd be training a year and a half, and then someone was training for six months, but they trained five days, six days a week. They started catching me. And, and when I would tap to someone who was training three or four months that was training hardcore, it was a big win for them. They're like, yeah, that guy's been training a year and a half, and I smoked him. And I didn't like that. I'm like, if, if I continue to train once a week, I'm going to keep getting caught by these new guys. So I just made a decision one day. I go, you know what? I'm quitting the striking. I'm going to, I'm going to spend all my time on jujitsu. I'm tired of these guys training six months and catching me. So, um, you know, for a while there, I felt like on the inside, like, Oh, I'm training striking too. You guys are just doing jujitsu. I'm doing striking and jujitsu for a while that could keep you afloat, you know, mentally, but 
after a while, you getting tapped by guys that only been training six months, but they're training six days a week. They're yeah. doing two a days. I, I couldn't handle that no more. So I go, forget about the striking. I got to go 100% in jiu-jitsu. <laughs> the, the, the tapping out just hurt, hurt my soul too much. <laughs> you know, we, we, always, we always in life looking for better nutrition and supplements. What jiu-jitsu does to people is the supplement that people need in their life. You know what I mean? It makes you healthy in every single aspect of your life. Yes. You're yes. healthy physically, you're healthy mentally, you're healthy spiritually. Only people who does jiu-jitsu long enough will understand what I'm saying. Jiu-jitsu become part of you. And you ask a, very, a lot of people today, could you live your life without jiu-jitsu? Not me. You, know. you understand? No. Now, now we don't know if uh, Jiu-Jitsu got into Eddie Bravo's life or Eddie Bravo got into the Jiu-Jitsu life. <laughs> how about that? You understand now how, how deep that becomes part of yourself, who you are? Yeah. That's what Jiu-Jitsu does to people. Make you know, people be whoever they want to be. Yeah. You know what? I think, I think a big part of it is, you know, someone that lives... Uh, an average um, life, your average life is you have a job, you work 40 hours a week, it takes you about 45 minutes to an hour to drive to and from work, that's eight hours plus maybe like 10 hours total. By the time you get home, you know, you gotta cut, you're gonna eat and then you're gonna chill, watch some TV and you might have an hour or two to do something else but you're so tired from work and every day is like that every day so um uh so you are not really the average person is not constantly learning something new and then getting really good at it and constantly something new and then getting really good at it and that's what jujitsu is jujitsu is you know um it's not like like the your traditional martial arts where there's a, a certain number of techniques and there might be a couple more, but like boxing, there's a finite number of techniques, but jujitsu is forever. There's this endless amounts of techniques. Um, most most jujitsu uh, masters uh, suck at more than they're good at. You know what I mean? Like I'm, there's so many techniques. There's no way you could be a master of all of them. You know, no, I'm, 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 but, go ahead, go ahead there. So my, my point is in jujitsu, you're constantly reminding yourself that you're, you suck at a technique and then if you practice it, you get better at it and then you're good at it. Then you get ninja at it and you're like, whoa. And you're constantly reminding yourself that, man, you could do this with anything. You want to get into real estate. You want to get into this business. You, if man. you put your mind to it, it constantly reminds you. That's why there's, man, in my, in my uh, experience, I've experienced, known a lot of super successful people that, that became super successful after jujitsu because they knew like todd white he's an example like todd white he's a painter and his work ethic is is what got him to where he's at now financially in the art world the guy's Man. huge and i, I think without jujitsu most people don't have the confidence to learn something new they think oh i can't do nothing oh, i can't do that i can't jujitsu guys don't do that jujitsu guys go like Oh, I, I can't do it right now, but if I put my mind to it, I know I could do it. And you know that, and, with, with, and then with business strategies, you apply the same knowledge. It's the, it's the, same, the same thing. Jiu-Jitsu gives you 
a physical discipline. Jiu-Jitsu gives you a mental discipline. Jiu-Jitsu gives you a spiritual discipline. And what happens is people say, oh, how come you're still so happy to train? Man, this is part of my discipline. I don't have to be inspired to train Jiu-Jitsu. I want to train Jiu-Jitsu. It's part of my discipline to go there and do it because I know that this good for me. Yeah. Everything I ever had in my life is through Jiu-Jitsu. Today's world, you can do anything you want in life to be successful. And if you do not know, you can learn. Jiu-Jitsu tells you that every day. Whoever you want to be in life, you can be. Don't get me wrong. I don't think no one born to work from nine to five. I don't think. If you want to be somebody in your life, you cannot be working nine to five. You just make sure you have no time for you on the end of the day. And you sit in front of TV to watch TV. Yeah. We're not born for that. You understand? We're born to live life, to enjoy life. Jiu-Jitsu teaches people that. Look at, at yourself. Look at myself. Like, man, people say, I never had a job in my life. I don't want to have a job. I want to live my life. I want to do jiu-jitsu. Through jiu-jitsu, I like so much that a lot of things are start coming into your plate. People said, I want to run, go after my dreams. Man, the dreams will come to you if you do the right thing. If I run after something, that means that thing is running away from me. The way jiu-jitsu does is bring things to you. You look at, into your school. How many business, how many things you create with the people that came to you to learn jiu-jitsu from you. People have that in mind. I'm going to run after this. I'm going to... Man, if you're in good spiritual, mental, physical, illness, if you're good, things will come to you. Jiu-jitsu does that for people they don't even realize. How many of things you achieve in your life that that guy sitting next to you in the match, hey, they have a great idea for you to do this. What? Here we go. You don't have to go after things. If you are in a good sense, things will come towards you. Yeah, that's the story of my life, man. The last thing I expected was to be a martial arts instructor. That's the last thing. I was just doing jujitsu for fun, to stay in shape initially, but I just got obsessed with it because it was real fun. Not for one second did I think that anybody would want to learn jujitsu from me. Because and back, you know what? Back in the nineties, all the all... great instructors never thought they'd be teaching jujitsu. Really, I didn't know that. Really, all of them. When they realized they already have a school, like what am I teaching jujitsu? Yeah, and they realized you've been doing that for so many years. You're an expert. Yeah, but and uh, um... things come to you. I never thought anybody, because back in the day in the 90s, if you weren't learning jiu-jitsu from a Brazilian, you weren't really learning jiu-jitsu. Because in the 90s, you had to find a Brazilian. Like, if you were learning jiu-jitsu from an American, and I'm Mexican, so I'm like, ain't nobody going to pick a Mexican over a Brazilian to learn jiu-jitsu. That's how I thought. I was like 28, 29. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, there's who who would want to learn jiu-jitsu from a Mexican when when there's all these Brazilian legends out here? We got John Jacques, we got Hickson, we got all these Brazilian legends everywhere. Why would they want to learn from a Mexican? So I never ever thought 
I would be teaching, never thought. As a matter of fact, right before Abu Dhabi 2003, I was still a brown belt. Before I went to uh, Sao Paulo and tapped out Hoyler, um, I got offered a job to teach jujitsu while I was still a brown belt at a boxing gym. And they go, hey, you want to teach jujitsu? You know, I'm like, dude, that would be a waste of your time and my time. Ain't nobody going to show up and learn jujitsu from me. We got all these, these legends all in LA. Like why? So I turned the job down. And then I went to Sao Paulo, tapped out Hoyler. And the job I was working at at the time was I was writing for the man show on Comedy Central. I just quit my strip club job to work while Joe hosted the man show. And that was a horrible, that, that was horrible. That was a nightmare. So I went to Brazil thinking, oh man, what am I gonna do? This is my last vacation. Uh, my job sucks. The show's gonna get canceled and it's horrible anyways. So when I came back, I'm like, you know what? I went back to that boxing gym and, and, and but the bomb squad to see if the offer still stood. Cause I go, you know what? I just have Todd Hoyler. I might be able to teach. Let me, let me try this out. And, uh, um, I did it in my first, the first day, it's going to be 20 years, uh, first week of June this year, 20 years. And that first day it was the first Thursday of uh, June, 2003 and 18 people showed up. And right there, I'm like, I couldn't believe 18 people showed up. I just got on the internet and said, hey, I'm teaching at the bomb squad. Uh, I'm starting to teach them. And then I got like the misfits. All the people that were unhappy at their school, just misfits showing up. And it was 18. I'll never forget that. I was like, whoa, I think I can do this. <laughs> I, remember, I remember going to Cincinnati with you for a seminar. And you taught a four-hour seminar in Cincinnati. And that was the, my first experience going to a jiu-jitsu seminar. And I remember thinking, uh, like, I'm your, assist I'm your assistant at this school in Cincinnati. And uh, I you remember thinking, belt. yeah, I remember thinking, how does he, how is he going to teach four hours of jiu-jitsu without writing it? I, like, you didn't write anything down. You were just doing it. And I'm like, how do you organize this? You doing four hours? <laughs> I, I remember just being blown away how you could go four hours. I go, ah, you're not even right. You don't have any notes. Where's the notes? Where's like the outline? You were just off the top of your head, just teaching four hours. It was crazy. And that, and that school was, I'll never forget that school either. <laughs> the it, was, it was, it was, it was, there was like this giant, giant gym, like a valley gym that was yeah. abandoned. Like a, think of the biggest gym, like the 24 hour, but bigger than 20. Like it was like a supermarket. It was as big as a supermarket, but it was abandoned. There was nothing in there, but in the back, there was this little room where they, where the guy had a, a, a karate school and you were teaching jujitsu. Remember that? It was, it was spooky. It was like a haunted, uh, like giant warehouse. There's a, that's how jujitsu. Start. And you still got that guy. Now he's an affiliate, right? Is he still yeah. out there? He's no, still but now he has a nice school. Nice. <laughs> That's nice. crazy, man. And then I also, I also uh, went with you to, you did a seminar at uh, the Danny and Asano Academy. It was just here locally in Marina yeah. Del Rey or something. I remember that. And still being fascinated, going, man, how is he putting together three and four hours of jiu-jitsu? I couldn't believe it. It's crazy. It, it, it's you see as a, you create a picture, it's like a puzzle. You show one technique, 
Then you connect everything else to that technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do it now because I remember yeah. when I when I first started doing seminars, yeah. I would think about it all week. Like, what am I going to teach? Like, I mean, and now I've done so many goddamn seminars, I don't even think about it. I just know sometimes, sometimes I have an idea. Okay, maybe I'll something that I taught early. It's usually when I do a seminar, it's something that I taught earlier that week that's fresh in my head. Because usually what I teach in my school is what I think is most important to, for my students at that time. So I'll walk into class and like, if I'm going to teach something like, what is the most important thing like right now? That's so, um, usually by the weekend when I teach a seminar, I usually still have that same feeling. Like, you know what? Let me take that into the seminar. The follow up of your class. Yeah. And then sometimes, dude, I do a seminar and they ask me, what are you going to teach? The seminar is starting in 10 minutes. What are you going to go over? I'm like, it's a surprise. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. And then it's like, I'm stretching out. I go, give me five minutes. I'm stretching. I'm like, what am I going to teach? What am I going to teach? And then I, then I have an idea. I go, okay, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to teach. I, I figured it out. And then right when I start talking and I, you know, I start bullshitting for about five minutes, I change my mind in the middle of that, that uh, opening monologue. And then I go somewhere else. <laughs> Just off the top of my head. Class, when you do the first position yes and then boom. oh yeah isn't that crazy and, and you know what it's exactly like that because i like i swear i'm driving to the seminar i haven't really decided like you don't even blank could, you don't even think like what i'm gonna teach you i don't even know <laughs> and i want to show the first technique yes yes go. and and i don't know about you but once i once i once i get in that zone i feel like once i get that connection I feel like, okay, I could go for nine hours now. And, and, and it's like within the first minute or two, I swear to God, the first minute or two, in my own head, I tell myself, I got this shit. <laughs> I tell them I got this. I don't know how where this is going to lead exactly, but it's just you have a connection with the people, and it's just automatic, and it's just – it's like, like you, know, I, you know, I'm doing stand-up. I've been doing stand-up now six years, and it's the same thing. Like if you go out, and you have like a physical connection with the crowd, I feel like I go, I could go all night. Like, I, like the energy and the connection is perfect. But if you go out on stage and something doesn't click and you say something wrong or you, you started too dark too early and then that kills the connection, then it's a bad night. <laughs> I still have bad nights in comedy. They, 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 don't, they don't all go good, not, not all of them. I'd say like 90% go great, but then every now and then I miss the connection. I came out too, it's usually I come out too dark and too hard. And uh, Joey Diaz, he, he gave me uh, some advice that I'll never forget. It's, it's always dear to my heart. I went out one day, Jean-Jacques, um, on the main stage in the, in, uh, at the comedy store, main stage, main room, went out and I was real confident. And I came out and started, you know, I said some stupid, you know, Illuminati joke, like, oh, Hillary's eating babies or some joke like that. And silence, crickets. And, it was, <laughs> and then I couldn't get the connection back. So it was, it was not a good set. And then Joey Diaz backstage goes, Eddie Bravo, you got to, you got to flick their pussy a little bit, play with their pussy, nibble on their ear a little bit. You can't put it right in their ass right away. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I'm like, yes, you can't go out there and just put it in their ass. I fucked up. <laughs> but but then, then it's funny because in the seminars, one thing that I always do is people ask questions. I don't know what they're going to ask. Yeah. But everything is based on the principles of the art. 
move forward, move back, put your weight, less weight, move first, move second. It's a very interesting thing that the more you, the more you train, the better you get in those little details. But that's why I like, I like a lot the, the fundamentals of the arts because that keeps you with a longevity yes. to be able to do jiu-jitsu today's time. Yes. Very, yes. A lot of creative people, a lot of Eddie Bravos out there. Oh man! Remember when I used to, remember remember when I used to get massive shit for naming moves. Remember that? Remember I Everybody was I was the bad now. guy. I was the bad guy for naming moves. Oh, he's the. What do you think about that Eddie Bravo guy naming all these moves? Now everybody names everything now. Now there's all these names everywhere. And now, it, but I had to, I had to, um, uh, what do you call that? I was a martyr or whatever. Um, <laughs> Is that even the right word? <laughs> but uh, ch- change, changing, changing gears a little bit, Jean-Jacques. Um, another thing where we see eye to eye is um, uh, in terms of life, um, society, uh, politics, is uh, we're both on that common sense level. Common yeah. sense, right? Um, not, it's not Democrat, Republican. It's none of that shit. It's just common sense. It's good versus evil. And the, the good, man, the good's hard to figure out because there's a lot of people pretending they're good. Um, the demons are easy to figure out. The demons, oh, that's easy. Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, Hillary. That, that's easy. They're all saying the same thing. It's so easy. And they got the media. They got the mainstream media. They got Hollywood. They got the music industry. They got all the big corporations. They got the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. They got all the sports organizations. So it's easy to see who the demons are. Not so easy to see who the good people are because, again, there's a lot of demons disguised as good people. Yeah, so you have to, you know, they're saying the right things, but you just don't know. Um, now, there's a lot of shit going on in Brazil that's very similar to what's going on in the United States. They got Bolsonaro out there who's like the Brazilian Trump. What, what, and there, there's some crazy shit going on a few days ago. Like the, they did the, the, the January 6th type bullshit over there in Brazil. And they got like that, that QAnon shaman. They got a Brazilian version of that. Like, Man, what's going on in I Brazil? Think, I think it, in general speaking, everything comes down to this. I think uh, what we are seeing today did not happen overnight. We're living in, this is we're talking about decades ago in the process. And I think on, when we're talking about education, and if you have a bad school, you're going to make bad professionals. And bad professionals, we have not so good results. And I think one of the biggest things today problem is people not knowing the meaning of the words. They don't know. They don't know the meaning of the words. If I hire a lawyer who doesn't know well the words to use, he might do the case completely wrong for me. And I think it's it's been decades of bad education in general in every single area of people's life. You go to university today, you're not going to get the degree you were hoping for 30, 40 years ago, which will make a difference in your life. You go to university, you go to school today, you, you get out smart supposedly or dumb as hell we don't know what they're teaching us 
You understand? I think people don't know the meaning of the words anymore. Nobody reads the content. Everybody just reads the title. I just see a title of something. Oh, I know. I know what it is. Nobody wants to waste time to read the content of the news. I will give an example. I want to be in the jiu-jitsu community, I would say. A lot of people have a book with uh, 25 chapters. People read the first two chapters, they become experts. They're not ready to teach. They, they might be good fighters, but they need to go through a lot more to become good instructors. And I think in every area of our life, in professionals today, not in, only in Brazil and America, is that people not being well educated. It's very hard today for you to have some kind of a communication. People are very short in their vocabularies. Many years ago, they did a study in Brazil uh, when they have those drug cartels on those favelas. And the police brought one of the bad guys, the main guy, and the police interviewed that guy. His vocabulary was only 20 words. Everything he wants to say is just 20 words he knew how to use it. And that's what we see today. If you want to talk to people, they don't have too many words to give you an explanation of why. They're just following what somebody else said. There's no communication in that aspect because it's a lack of education. You know, how many words we, we hear out there and we ask the person, what, do you know what you're saying? I have no idea. I'm just copying this person that said this. People don't even want to find out what actually is or what actually happening. Everybody, I think the technology make people, is the danger is too lazy and you have the people that are too smart. I think the majority of people don't want to think anymore. Do we know the phone number of people in our iPhone? You just click the name. You don't know even that number anymore. People are thinking less. That's the problem today. And the less they think, the result is not going to be the best. That's an unfortunate thing. In Brazil, is repeating the story over here. That's an unfortunate, you know. We have uh, always, it's not about if you are from one side or the other. It's the common ground for the most of people. And I think politics is not a job. And today, politics is a job. And when I get to that job, I want to get rich. That's it. It's not about solving anybody else's problem, you know. I want to become a CEO of the company. I don't care. I just want to get rich. It's all about the money. Now is the number one goal, not solving anybody's problem. And that is unfortunate because um, the society is the one that loses the most. Down the road, people that are against others will realize that, you know what? That other person is not my enemy. The enemy is somebody else who's creating all this situation. I never thought in my whole life I would see homeless in the richest country in the planet, America. I never thought. I grew up in Brazil seeing homeless on the streets. I never ever imagined seeing homeless here where we live today. There's something but, that blew but, my mind. I mean, the favela situation in Brazil, isn't it... Isn't isn't it 50% favelas? Because I know like 20 years ago, it was 50% favelas. Did they fix that or is it still the same? Still the same, just bigger. Uh, that's insane. Because 
favela, favelas are... The difference is this. You in Brazil, you are obligated to vote. You obligate. The less education I provide to people, the less they think about it. Then whatever I tell with nice words, I will be able to convince you. As somebody who wants to governor, I don't want to have smart people that want to die, want to talk to me about it. You know what I mean? I want to have people that are not so smart that I'm convinced them to do this is the best for you. In Brazil, the same thing is the majority of the population, unfortunately, are not well educated. And the information they get are very limited. And because you're obligated to vote, let's see you go to your neighborhood and say, hey, everyone, I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to put like a nice roads for you guys if you guys vote for me. Then I'm going to vote for this guy. He's doing something for me. But after the elections, it will never show up again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I'm buying my way in. That's basically what happened there. It's, it's a how it happened there. And I think it's a lack of education, a good education in general. It makes people not so smart. And this is a problem, man. It's like somebody want to teach you. They never trained jiu-jitsu before. They want to teach you how to teach jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And they go, hmm, really? Yeah. How? Now, what is there? Is there hope for Brazil? Man, I think in many countries, our hope is what? The military. You look into the military and say, hey, please do something. Do something. But then the military could be corrupt as well, though, right? Who, that, that's another thing. I mean, then we're losing hope little by little. Yeah. And at the end, it's all about what? Money, power. Yeah. It's, just, I mean? it's, it's just so hard to tell who's legit and, and who's not. I mean, based on... Um, like the words coming out of people's mouth, like like when when Trump says uh, America first, when Trump says make America great again, and um, and most of the stuff, if you sit and listen to Trump, yes, he's arrogant. Yes, he, you know, you know. I would tell you this: I grew up in Brazil, and I was listening to America is the number one, and I used to live in Brazil. I never even thought I'd be living in America. And I was wondering, like, wow, I wish Brazil was number one. That's why we put so much faith in the soccer, because soccer is what? Number one in the world. Every country wants to be number one. Today, I live in America. I want America to be number one, not number two, not number three, not number four. I want the America to be number one, because I live here. I became an American, too. I want to see the best over here. That's why we're here. And people got to realize no other country in the world will give so much opportunities to anybody that comes here to have a decent life. Only America. No other place in the world. I had a chance to travel all over the world. Only in America, if you do it right, you make it. You can have a nice life for you, for the generations that come after you. Only United States of America provides that yeah i think i think i think uh america the united states of america is definitely the number one best minimum security prison in the world and i think is this i think every generation in in countries 
got to go through something. You have generations that went to war. You have generations who went to virus. You have generations who went to recession. And I think our generation is seeing things very strange right now. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who tells the truth. We don't know who's lying. Then we think we know who's saying this. We think we know who's doing that. And we just see things that it makes no sense anymore. It's very hard. Yeah, I don't know, I don't man. Watch TV. I don't watch TV anymore. Well, yeah, TV, TV, 100% of TV, 100% of TV what? is propaganda. I mean, they, I they capture TV. TV. I mean, the only truth you're going to find is on the internet, but there's a lot of bullshit on the internet too. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, be smart and, and sift through all the nonsense and the bullshit to find the truth. You know, you gotta look for the truth on the internet like a detective, you know, cause there's a lot of bullshit on the internet, but the truth is also on the internet. You just gotta find it. And with, with Trump, for instance, when it comes between Biden and Trump, Biden, a hundred percent demon, and everybody that's with him and supporting him, demons. That's 100%. That's a million percent. It's a million. Uh, Trump, he's, to me, I'm like, I can't trust anybody. I hope, I hope uh, uh, he's um, all about America first. I hope he really is battling the demons. I, I hope he I, is. I like, hope he think is. about it. A few years ago was the best years business-wise of my life in America. Absolutely. Oh, coincidentally, who is the president? Yeah. Now yeah. everybody's struggling in general. Coincidentally, who's the president? Know what I mean? Exactly. And I think people exactly. got to realize that things are different. Some people better. Most of people not so good. And we see, I think our generation is going through some uh, challenge times, uh, misinformation, not a good education. But I think at the end, we will turn things around. I think uh, the time will prove that the good is much better than evil. Yeah, I was, I was talking to one of my um, liberal friends. I have a lot of them. And uh, he, this guy hates Trump. He hates him. And, I'll, and I asked him, like, okay, w w why do you hate him again? Like, you know, and he's all like, uh, they can never think of why, but oh, he's just such an, he's such an, arrogant asshole i just can't stand him it's just so he's just an asshole i can't stand him i go listen the president you're not supposed to take road trips across the united states with the president all right you're not like if you had a if you had a a business you had a big business and had a board and had a ceo and you were just the owner and you didn't you know you were out enjoying your life you know you had you delegated a lot of all your power to you know people you trust and all that and then it turns out in your in your company there was a lot of theft going on and people are, are robbing you and business is going down and you're getting robbed. so there's like some some um uh, you got some rats in your business, right? And if some guy, if some guy came up to you and said, "Hey, listen, I know this guy. His name is Donald Trump. He's he's the best at finding out who's stealing from you. He's gonna he's gonna sniff them out. And not only that, not only is he gonna clean out all the rats, but he's also gonna take your business to the next level, to the highest level." And Here's the thing, now, man. Now, 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 if 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 if, and I asked my friend, I go. Would you want this guy, Donald Trump, to come in and fix your business? Or would you say, oh, he's an asshole. He's an ass. He's too arrogant. If that guy came in, I don't care how arrogant he was. If he could fix my business, that's what it's about. Because It's about the economy. It's not about taking road trips with this guy. Eddie, you know what I mean? It's not about hanging out with this guy and talking to him on the phone. Thing, man. It's about this fixing the, the country.
Every country in the world is a corporation. Simple. I want somebody who knows how to run exactly. the business. Exactly. If you manage the business well, and to be a good leader, you're not liked by many because yeah. you have to make decisions. Every time we decide something, people are affected. Some good, some bad. Yeah, but and, it's, it's, and he, he, he um, play that clip, Hibbler, real quick. Listen to this, Jean Jacques. When did Trump say this? Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, and crazy Nancy Pelosi are the sinister faces of this corrupted, lawless political establishment. They enrich their families in Ukraine, China, Russia, while they set violent criminals loose without charges while prosecuting their political opponents for fabricated crimes. They legalize mass robberies and cheer for BLM and Antifa rioters, ransacking our cities while they hold nonviolent protesters without trial, destroy their lives. They indoctrinate your children to hate their parents while calling you a hateful racist. They stick the FBI on mothers at school board meetings while they teach four-year-olds to pick their own genders. Would you like to change your gender? And they say it's absolutely fine for a boy or man to participate in women's sports. I don't think so. They use big tech to censor you. They use the deep state to spy on you. They use the media to slander you. They use the legal system to persecute you. You It is a persecution. All the while they claim as they are the ones defending democracy. They say they are the ones that are going to defend your democracy and your justice. It's a lot of bullshit. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I like that. Everything he said, it was true. I mean, what did he Isn't say? That ha- he say? Isn't that but happening was- right now? Exactly. Exactly. But, oh, he's an asshole. He, he, he's, he, he calls people that's, out. That's what's going on. That's he's calling people saying. out. People don't know the meaning of the words. What has to do his personality with the job the person was doing? Man, a few years ago, three years ago, everybody's making so much money. Everything was amazing. People forgot about that. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. Then they realize it, it's something sad. And I think uh, down the road, all the people that are against will realize like, holy shit, it's hitting on me now. But all we want is somebody who puts our place ahead. Because you're thinking about in your life, if you think who's the most important person for you in the world? My son. Wrong. Yourself. Because your son can only be good if you're good. Because if you're not doing good, your son's not going to be doing good. You understand? He needs somebody to look up for. I think people got to realize that the pandemic did what to people. They made people look at the mirror at home by themselves, no distraction. They didn't like what they saw. They didn't like what they see, right? Like, oh, my God, I'm out of shape. I'm not doing this. Oh, my life is so horrible. But it's so much distraction around people. We are in search for somebody to make you happy in your life. You don't need anybody to be happy. You need to be happy yourself. People in search to find someone. You got to find yourself first to be able to find someone. People spend their whole life not knowing who they are. 
That's what the pandemic did to people. So many people got suicide. So many people start getting drunk. So many people start very heavy drug addict because they don't like what they see and they don't do anything to change. It's in every religion would say, love yourself first. Then you know what love is. Then I can love somebody else. I want to learn Jiu-Jitsu first to be able to teach Jiu-Jitsu to others. And people forget about that. People, they don't know who they are. That's why on the podcast, they ask, who are you? Um, I don't know. You don't know who you are? You understand? You got to know who you are first. And people don't realize that. You are the most important in the world. Because everybody on your surround depends on your well-being. If you know who you are, man, you know where you step, you know what you're doing, everything. The sun is an extension of yourself. I understand what you're saying because I, oh, who's the most important person? For my kids to be good, I have to be good first. You understand? Yes. Now, what would you, what advice would you give to someone who's listening to this right now who's thinking, damn, uh, maybe I don't know who I am. How do I find out who I am? Man, look at your life. I think we, people are here, but they're not living their life. And I think we, people are always in search of something. Through jiu-jitsu, I was able to see life in a different way. I was able to understand what friends are. I was able to understand what family are. I was able to understand what love is. I was able to understand a lot of things in my life because a lot of the things that people don't know who they are is because they don't have a family. A lot of people, they're born and they don't have their own family. And they don't know what family is. That means they don't know what love is. They don't know what friends are. They don't know a lot of things that in jiu-jitsu, you end up learning a lot about yourself. You cannot lie to your instructor when you train jiu-jitsu. If you're an asshole, you're going to show you're an asshole. If you are weak, you're going to show that you're weak. If you're afraid, you're going to show that you're afraid. If you feel very aggressive, you're going to show. You're going to show your personality. And what Jiu-Jitsu does, and we don't even sometimes know how we do that, but through the teaching that we do using the mechanic of Jiu-Jitsu, we're changing people's life to make them to believe in themselves first. If I don't believe in myself, how am I going to convince in you to believe in yourself? And jiu-jitsu make you start looking for yourself. How can I get better? I'm going to start doing diet to do better in jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu to me is a magical word that I'm able to use without offending people. Eddie, you want to be a world champion? You got to start eating better. The reality is your health is going to get better. But jiu-jitsu does not let I offend you. Man, you're looking fat, so horrible. You should do something. Now, I use jiu-jitsu as a magical word for you to achieve uh, your goal. Consequently, it's not for jiu-jitsu. It's for yourself. And I think people got to ask that question. Who, who, who am I? What I like to do in life. I don't want to follow anybody. I want to lead myself. People are used to follow. Follow here, follow there. No, I don't want to be like anybody else. I want to be myself. And I think you look at the mirror. It's an easy thing. Look at the mirror and ask yourself, who are you? Um, and I, I guarantee you, you're going to find the answers that what you want to be 
what you don't want to be. You want to see what you're doing that you don't want to do. And you change yourself. But the benefit is people finding their environment they are happy with. But I ask that question too is, what would you like to be doing five years from now? Uh, I would like to be um, able to play catch with my son. And because <laughs> my, my back, Jean Jacques, man, I haven't been to class because my shoulders are healed. My, then, the, stem then cells, the stem cells fixed, uh, fixed my shoulders. But my back, I got metal back there. The I point, got screws. And man, my back is not uh, doing The point well. is this why I have to wait five years? Why don't I do that today? Average. People work until 67 years old, until they retire. Average, roughly speaking, is people live until 78. I work my whole life to be able to enjoy 11 years. How crazy is that? It's insane. Insane. Yeah. People should be living their lives today. What would you like to do? If you like something, the chances are going to do so well that you're going to make your life, living life over this. You do jiu-jitsu today, you do so well that you're living off. I never feel that I'm going to work when I come to my school. Yeah, me neither. Well, like, like I don't retiring? Do. And you like, pay me to do this? How amazing is that? Yeah, I think my, people my, got to realize and ask that question. Who am I? What I like to do? What I'm going to do? I don't know. You should know. It's you. It's easy answer, right? I don't know. How come you don't know? Yeah. You should know. If yeah, you don't know, you're going to end up in somewhere that you, you don't know. My business manager, uh, my former business manager, I should say, he uh, put a lot into my retirement. So I've, I have a pretty good retirement, you know. Um, but I'm like, I want to spend that money now. Like, I'm never, I'm never going to retire. When you own a jiu-jitsu school, you don't retire. You know what I mean? You just, if you get so old that you can't teach, you have someone teach for you. But, like, I'm not going to close the school down and retire. I'm going to have my school till the day I die. You know, I'll, I'll be in there in a wheelchair. I want to live life every day. We don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I want to I wanna look at to my kids and say, I love you. I want to look at the people around me, be kind. Maybe it's the last time I see that person. It's not being, uh, I'm just being realistic. That's why I want to live life. Be happy, make people my surround happy, you know. Making, making a good living. Some people, wealthy is, have a good job, on the weekends do this. They're happy, they achieve their goals in life. I'm so happy for them. Some people is to have a mansion in Malibu. That's their goal. You know what I mean? But every time you know what you want in your life, you're going to be a happy person because you like what you're doing to achieve their goal. Maybe along the way, you realize that's not what I want. It's a lot more important for me is this, you know? What is the difference for you to have 50 million or 100 million? No, I don't, I don't see the difference. Oh, I can buy more. Oh, you can buy more of these. Does that make you happy? At the end, what we take in life is what? What we leave, not what we have. Don't get me wrong. Everybody has, and I think it's so much money in the world. Every single person on the planet should have money, a lot of great life, a lot of great time. If they think otherwise, they're thinking wrong. 
People say, oh, this guy enjoying life. Like, oh, you, you're Jean Jacques Machado. Say, my friend, I was like everybody else 30 years ago, but I know what I want. That's the thing. You got to know what you want, which direction you're going. Oh, I take this freeway, it's going to take me somewhere. Maybe you don't like where it's taking. Stop. Make sure you get the road that you want to get. And if you're, and I use jiu-jitsu a lot because it's jiu-jitsu is some kind of a meditation. We don't have to go after anything. If you're good, you, you'll understand how manifest yourself, things will come to you. And if you think about how many students that you connect that you're doing business with, how many of the guys that in your own school came to be your student? Suddenly you see an opportunity to do business that are good for you and good for the other person. It's not just good for you. How many people that are providing directions in their life through your, your school? You know what I mean? I one day I joke the guys, hey, I'm gonna close my school today. People, oh my God, you can't do that. Like, man, I, I'm moving back to Brazil. Oh, Jesus Christ, what am I gonna do in my life? <laughs> you understand? Jiu-Jitsu, it's yeah. now part of a lot of people's everyday life. Yeah, I love it when my instructors open a school and a lot of them at first still have to keep their day jobs, but eventually a year into owning the school, maybe two or three, when they finally quit their job, that I get, that feels so good. Like, man, you quit your job for jujitsu. It's like, I got, I got about 180, um, head instructors at schools all over the world. And, um, what a job teaching people. Think about how, it. Teaching people how to defend themselves, how to defend their families. The process of that started on that decision that you made to start training jiu-jitsu. On the decision, on the decision I made to buy the Mercedes instead of the VW. <laughs> that's, the that's what did was, it right there. <laughs> you were investing in yourself. Yeah. A lot of people, they forget about that. When they just think about investing themselves when they start making money. Oh, now I'm going to get a personal trainer. You shouldn't always invest in yourself. More knowledge, healthy, be happy. Because yeah. you are, people are the reflection of you, the people in your surround. If you go to your school and you look like shit, your whole school is going to look like shit. Everybody in your round is going to look like shit. But if you feel good, you show up, you smile, confident, you're passing that to everybody. Yes. Here we go. Imagine, man, 180 people today and their families and some of their friends' life are much better because they know you. And because I know you. You understand? I couldn't, I couldn't have done it without you, Jean-Jacques. No, but, but that's the there. best one, man. You were always, you, you were always there to... Um, guide me along because i was doing unorthodox stuff i had crazy ideas but anytime i hit a roadblock you were i was always you were always there to help me through the roadblock and and a giant part of the 10th planet system comes from you all the overhook game and the butterfly sweeps from the overhook and all that that was all you you were you know in abu dhabi the adcc it's so big now adcc is 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 almost you know they you know they invited me to fight the next one Hell yeah! Because for, for the people that for the people that don't know, like right now, Gordon Ryan is the ADCC uh, 
uh, legend right now. But before Gordon Ryan, there was Marcelo Garcia in the 2000s. He was the ADCC legend. He's the one. And, 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 and there's a lot of good competitors out there. Hop Mendes, Cobrina. There's a lot of other good guys. Harder Gracie. But I'm talking about the guys that went out there and submitted everybody. That was Gordon Ryan, and that's Marcelo Garcia. But before Marcelo Garcia, it was you. You were the first ADCC legend. You were the first one to go out there because the first couple, you know, was a bunch of jujitsu guys fighting wrestlers and without a gi, and there was a lot of a lot of boring matches. There was a couple great matches here and there, but those couple, the first couple Abu Dhabis were it was atrocious, really. But when you came out. And you finished everybody. The first year you came out, you finished everybody to get that gold medal. Everybody was like, whoa, it is possible. Because a lot of guys were out there thinking, oh, without the gear, you know, it's too slippery. It's hard to finish. And and then the wrestlers knew how to throw bodies around without a gear, but they didn't know how to pass the guard. Wrestlers didn't know how to finish. They just knew how to control without a gear. And the jujitsu guys, they they knew how to pass the guard and submit but without the gi against a wrestler, there's a lot of stalemates. But you're the one who came out there, and you were the very first ADCC legend. Marcelo was, came after, and then Gordon Ryan came after that. And uh, people need to know that and never forget that. Jean-Jacques, what's next for you? What's going on? How can my people get a hold of you? Man, I'm here in my school teaching. I have some um, – I'm going to open a new school. Very soon I'm going to announce where. It's a, a branch from my school in another neighborhood. Um, I'm doing some uh, great things outside Jiu-Jitsu school, but everything related to Jiu-Jitsu. When are the movies come out? The Maeda and the Hickson movie? What, what's, what yeah, it, 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 it's, it's already in the process behind the scenes to solidify the whole... Who's playing uh, Hickson? Pretty soon. Who's playing pretty Hickson? Soon. Do you know the actor? Is he a famous actor or is he yeah. a brand new guy? Brand new guy yeah. or famous? He's a famous actor in Brazil. He's a young guy who is also a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Is it going to be in Portuguese or in English? Um, if I understood right, that's going to be three countries that's going to be filmed. America, Japan, and Brazil. And if you're in Japan, they're going to speak Japanese subtitles to make really what it yeah. is. Yeah, and if you're in Brazil, Portuguese subtitles. Yes. And in America, English. And I think it's, uh, there's a way to go. I'm very excited about it, to be part of this. Hey, Amen. Did, did you consult any, did you put together any fight scenes? Uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make people fight the jiu-jitsu on that 80s. It's a different fundamentals. It's no points, and it's, it's what we call the invisible jiu-jitsu. So, so we haven't seen, or you haven't filmed uh, the fight scenes yet. That's still no. to be done? No. So the Maeda movie is, is the Ma Maeda movies coming out first and then later the Hickson movie comes, it's like part two? No, they're both together. They're both together, same time? Parallel. Two separate same movies? Time. Two separate movies? Same time, one movie telling story of these two champions. Oh, okay, because I thought you told me that that was the original idea, but yeah, they, no, they, had so much, they had so much material that they thought, why don't they just make two separate movies? No? That's also a possibility, but the original is still up there. They're going to be that... Parallel story of those two true champions. Yeah, the story no. of Maeda. Oh, man. That could be, you know what? That should be a 10-part series. It shouldn't even be one movie. Man, they be, produce the idea so much. It's, uh, it could be a series for sure. 
Yeah, series would be way better. Just take your time. Tell the story right and take your time. Jean-Jacques, I love you. Thank you for doing this. Please, uh, uh, you know, we'll do part two soon. Um, I'll be at at the school as soon as my back, as soon as that pain subsides just a little bit, I'm going to show up, put the gi on, and, you know, I'll start collar choking again, okay? Look, love you, my brother. Keep doing what you're doing. Help save us all. Hey, I'm Thank doing you, <laughs> Thank you, John Jock. I'll talk to you soon. Take Love care, you. guys. See ya. The Jiu-Jitsu Dojo is the ultimate training ground for life. Jiu-Jitsu will accelerate the evolution of your being, your consciousness, your soul. Through this amazing art, you will prove to yourself that you can master anything you set your mind to. I leave for Brazil tomorrow. Are you the fear factor guy? I'm uh, like six pounds over. Time to sweat it out. Just imagine someone that has no idea how different your game is. I'll tell you what this weekend was, man. It was a culmination point where all your hard work comes to like one great moment in time. You showed that you're a fucking champion. Guy who goes against convention. You created your own shit and figured interesting ways to get around problems in jujitsu. And shows you that great things are possible if you work hard, if you dedicate yourself, and you use your creativity, and you push through. Your own human potential just goes up. My 10th Planet Association has grown rapidly to over 70 academies worldwide, and their curriculums are all synced to 10th Planet headquarters located in downtown Los Angeles. I'm Eddie Bravo. I hope to see you on the mats. You can tell it's real because it looks so fake.